Jess. Oh my gosh, Allison. Hello. It's fancy seeing you here. Such a weird coincidence. Crazy. It's almost like we have this on a schedule. Absolutely. We record at the same time <laughs> every single week. But usually it's pushed back by about 30 minutes, usually by me, who decides they need more time with their story last minute. So welcome to uh, 30 minutes after our initial scheduled time, Jess. So happy to see you. Um, happy to see you too. And for everybody listening, welcome back to Salt Lime Storytime. I'm Allison. That's Jess. And we are here with more stories. Jess, would you like to tell them about this week's topic? Okay. We are doing conspiracy theories this week. And I am really excited for this. I took it in kind of a cheating direction, I'll be honest, but we'll get into it in a little bit. Um, Allison, I'm excited to hear yours. But first, I haven't talked to you in like a week. How have you been? What's what's your latest life update? Um, nothing much. Uh, our mutual friend came and visited from out of the state. And so she came and stayed with us for a week. Uh, we went on a lot of fun adventures. We went hiked to some waterfalls in Oregon. It was so pretty. We kind of explored, got to do trivia night, one of the bars. So it was kind of, it was fun. Like I got to do a lot of things I wanted to do uh, since being in Oregon with her that week. And so I had a really good time. It was very, very, very eventful. Also today I got to, um, I brought Rue out onto our little back tiny patio area and watched him and I saw him chase a bee and it was the cutest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. So anyway, that's me. Does he know that you're allergic to bees? And is that why he was chasing it to protect you? No, actually, um, he chased it into a cover for a camping chair. And I had to go and adjust the camping chair so that it could fly out. So I actually had to get much closer to the, it was a bumblebee. It looked like a queen. I didn't get a good look at it, but it looked like a, might've been a Bombus by Maculatus. I can't remember. Hi, I worked at a bee lab for two years with bumblebees specifically. I love them. They're like giant flying teddy bears and I had to learn their scientific names. Um, It doesn't matter, but it was really cute and it buzzed away and didn't attack us because bumblebees are very gentle creatures. So hi there. Yes, editing Allison here. I just wanted to say that the bee was actually a Bombus occidentalis as bimaculatus does not exist in this region. And yes, it does not matter, but um, this is my podcast and I can do whatever the fuck I want. Thank you so much. My favorite, fact about, my favorite fact about you is that you know a ridiculous amount about bees, even though you Thank are you. allergic to them. I think it's so adorable. Not as a, I, I don't know, because it's more wasps. Like wasps are bad, but like I was stung by a bumblebee once. That's accidentally because I crushed it in my leg pit when I was like in the field and I felt, I felt so fucking bad. It stung me and I like slapped it off. And then I remember I was like on my way to the hospital and I was like, do you think the bee's okay? I feel so bad. Like, it was just, I didn't mean to crush anything. And anyway, I was just like way more devastated about the fact that I might have like accidentally squished this bee. <laughs> the fact that Thank I was God. currently in the ER. But anyway, um, that was more of just a precaution to go there. So like, I, I think I might not be as allergic as I was when I was younger, but I'm not going to test that hypothesis. But hey, enough about me and my bee allergies and my little bee career. Can you tell me about your week? You did something pretty fun, didn't you? My God, I've had a really great week. I got to go to three different shows this week. I got to see Trixie and Katya of RuPaul Drag Race fame live, and it was the most transformative experience of my entire life. It was amazing. And then I got to see John Mayer live, No Until Taylor Swift on me. He was also amazing. But to make up for 
going to John Mayer, despite what a bad boyfriend he was to Taylor Swift and the slew of other women he's dated. I also went to a Taylor Swift 90s dance party and it is as cringy as that sentence sounds, but it was also so fun. Like I literally woke up and did not have a voice the next day because I just like scream sang along with these Taylor Swift, like with all these Swifties in this random room in downtown Salt Lake. And it was seriously a delight. The DJ had compiled a bunch of like 2014 Harry Styles Taylor Swift fan edit YouTube videos and that was his like background for everything that's so good and you would have thought that like Oprah Winfrey had entered the room and was giving out cars when the first one started because when Harry came on the like the little screen thing everyone lost their mind as if like they're actually in the room it was it was really fun. So well, everyone was living their middle school fantasies in that moment. No, you know it. it was quite literally like what every 15 year old girl wants a high school dance to be. Mm-hmm. But you're all adults and there's booze. So <laughs> oh, it was yes, a, it was a grand time. One of the friends that we went with tracked it on his like did a did a Apple Watch workout and tracked it and said we all burned up around 1200 calories in the course of two hours <laughs> because it was we were dancing so much it was seriously so fun so good time spent with friends it was like the first 70 degree day here in utah so we're having like our weird little false spring right now and it was just like you could just like feel everybody's soul come alive again and it culminated in a taylor swift dance party but uh yeah so that's been my week it's been good excited for this summer excited for it to not be like dreary anymore heard that also if you can ever hear me swallowing my wine into my microphone let me know because I can't with eating and drinking noises personally so I don't want to torture anybody else that being said Jess what are you drinking today I'm having a good old-fashioned Moscow mule it's a grand time nothing too exciting this one's made with bourbon so that's kind of interesting but it's pretty good and you're just doing your usual pinot grigio yeah, um, I have a lot of means to make yummy cocktails, including margaritas, Moscow's, gin and tonics, you name it, but I would have to do more dishes if I did that. And also our very first episode where we did uh, Miracles, yeah, the Sir Miracle Survival Stories, I drank a margarita and I did my story second and it was much more difficult (laughs) to do that and because I also just realized that I don't have to put like two full shots of tequila in every margarita that I drink like I can make it less strong and I just did not make that connection until like basically just now so maybe I'll have a margarita next time but I just won't make it as strong so I actually survive but anyway yeah so I'm just drinking some nice pinot grigio um, pacing myself so that I don't have to edit out a bunch of bullshit of me just slurring my words or like I did very briefly once it was so fucking annoying um I love that so much no you don't hey. you didn't have to listen to it it sucked it was so annoying editing like drunk me oh gross anyway what's up but I was at a bar before the John Mayer concert I went to And these girls that we were with that I didn't know, I had met them from my neighbor uh, and friend who we went to the concert with, they were doing tequila shots. And I was like, oh my gosh, my friend and I have have a podcast called Salt Lime Storytime. You should listen to it. So now I have a perfect pickup line 
for our podcast whenever I'm in bars. Hey, you're doing a shot of tequila. Can I tell you about another similar form of self-care that is like a shot of tequila? We'll need to workshop this this marketing. It'll damage your ears like it damages your liver. It's perfect. You'll also wince at the end. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Okay, Allison, I think it's your turn to go first this week, so you'll have to edit me slurring my words, but I do that stone cold sober anyway, so it's fine. What's your podcast this week? Shit. It's my podcast this week. I'm drunk. Go home. Go home, Jessica. You're drunk. (laughs) Fucking hell. All right. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, what is your conspiracy theory? Give it to me. Jess. Would you like to go on a trip with me? Yes. Jess, would you like to get on a plane with me and go flying somewhere? Depends on the plane, but sure. Um, probably not on Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. <laughs> you are not doing this flight right now. <laughs> Welcome to the conspiracy theories surrounding the disappearance of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, also known as MH. 370. Okay. Can I tell you what I think I know about this in regards to like the conspiracy theories that I have like heard? Mm -hmm. From my understanding, the theory is the pilot committed suicide in like a strategic spot of the ocean and took everybody down with him. Is that the only theory you know? (laughs) That's the theory that I saw on TikTok the other day. Oh, the other day? Literally, like, three days ago, I saw TikTok about this. Because you're correct. That is one of the theories. Personally, that is, I think, probably the most likely theory. But I will go into several of the theories. Several of the theories since I wrote an entire book report on this. Um, All right. So, shall we start? Yes, please. All right. On March 8th, 2014... At 12.41 a.m., Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, also known as MH370, took off from Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia and began its journey towards Beijing, China. Aboard the Boeing 777 were 227 passengers from 14 different countries and 12 crew members. The weather was calm and flying conditions were perfect with minimal wind and cloud forecasted for the six-hour flight. Inside Malaysia's air traffic control tower, everything seemed normal when the plane exited from their field of radar 40 minutes after takeoff. The pilots had been instructed to do the routine switch to the air traffic control in Ho Chi Minh City as the aircraft passed through Vietnamese airspace. At 1.19 a.m., the pilot confirmed the instructions for the switch and said, Malaysian 370, good night. And with that, MH370 would never be heard from again. Five hours later, at 6.30 a.m., the plane was scheduled to land at the Beijing airport. Passengers' families gather, eager to see their loved ones who would unfortunately never arrive. An hour later, at 7.24 a.m., Malaysia Airlines released a statement on Facebook confirming that MH370 was officially missing. A vast search and rescue operation was carried out in the South China Sea where the plane initially lost contact with air traffic control around 1.21 a.m. An entire week had passed before the Malaysian military came forward and said that they had actually been watching the airplane on their radar the entire time. Rescuers were not searching in the right area. 
In fact, they were searching in the wrong part of the world entirely. That's right. At the time that the aircraft was officially pronounced missing, it was actually still flying. What? I didn't know that. Oh, bitch, just uh, sit down and wait because it's going to get better. Ready? The military radar shows that at 1.22 a.m., three minutes after closing out contact with the Malaysian air traffic control and failing to check in with the air traffic control in Ho Chi Minh City, the plane took a sharp left turn, veering off course and flying back towards Malaysia. It continues southwest until it reaches Penang Island, just off of Malaysia, where it takes another turn to the right and continues northeast towards the Andaman Sea. At 2.22 a.m., while flying farther and farther over the ocean, the plane disappears from military radar. Thus would begin the most expensive multinational search effort in aviation history. And to this day, the plane has never been found. And I would just right now ask you just to look up a picture of the flight path so you can visualize it because it's crazy and it's really hard to describe. And I personally, if you took me outside, I could not tell you which way is north, south, east, or west. So look it up and let me know when you have it. Okay. So they departed, flew across Malaysia, and then basically you turned it, went back over a different part of Malaysia, kind of through Thailand. And then disappeared in the middle of the ocean in the Adamant mm-hmm. Sea. And that's, yep. is that what I'm looking at? That's what you're looking at for now. Um, yeah, so that's what happened. That's what the military radar helped piece together. So, and that's just the beginning. That's just the intro of this because this is so complicated. And the more I looked into it, the more I got like completely just mind fucked about how confusing things actually are so let's first take a step back and look at the pilots flying mh370 that morning piloting the plane is 53 year old captain zahari ahmad shah captain zahari was highly esteemed he had more than 18,000 hours of flying experience and had flown for the airline for 30 years and was also a flight instructor The former chief pilot for Malaysia Airlines, Nick Huzlan, said that he was considered an invisible pilot because of his pristine flying record. Never had any problems, and basically he flew under the boss's radar, so to speak. Thank you so much. He was married with three children. He had gone so far as to build a flight simulator in his home and practice crash landings and emergency procedures. However, his brother-in-law said that the simulator broke in 2013, that he hadn't been on it for over a year. But like, that's how dedicated this guy was to flying is that he literally built a simulator so that on his off time, he was flying. He was also reportedly very politically active and against the Malaysian government, uh, which I will talk about a bit more when I get to the conspiracy theories, because that does become important. And sitting to his right is 27-year-old Farik Abdul Hamid. It is his first time co-piloting a Boeing 777 aircraft without a Czech co-pilot supervising, which is a really big deal. He had 2,700 hours of flying experience and was happily engaged to a female pilot who flew in the same airline. They're very super, super, super cute together. I saw a picture of them. They're adorable. Upon entering the airport and going through to TSA, the surveillance footage shows them seeming seemingly very normal and relaxed, and it doesn't seem like anything's out of the ordinary for either of them. All right. I debated at what point was best to go through the entire timeline, but I'm just going to do it right now just to kind of set the stage here, and if I need to go back to it, I can just let me know. So... 
At 12.41 a.m., Flights 370 took off. 20 minutes later, at 1.01 a.m., it reached a cruising altitude of 35,000 feet. At 1.07 a.m., the Aircraft Communication Addressing and Reporting System, known as ACARS, which transmits data about the aircraft's performance every 30 minutes, sent its last transmission and was subsequently switched off. ACARS reports and transmits the health of the plane while in the air and is designed to never be turned off during flight. In order to do so, it would take an experienced person who studied how to bypass the system or an extreme technical malfunction. All right, so that was at 1.07 a.m. At 1.19 a.m., the last voice communication from the crew occurred when they said goodnight. At 1.21 a.m., the plane's transponder, which communicated with air traffic control, was switched off, just as the plane was about to enter Vietnamese airspace over the South China Sea. At 1.30 a.m., Malaysian military radar began tracking the plane as it turned around and then flew southwest over the Malay Peninsula and then northwest over the Strait of Malacca. Sometime within the next hour, the plane reached 45,000 feet. This is unauthorized and very dangerous. It is almost impossible unless the engines are on full blast and it is traveling at full speed. Like basically like the engines could have stalled at any moment. The air up there is so thin. A flight, like a plane that size, that heavy, should never be at that high of an altitude. And at 2.22 a.m., Malaysian military radar lost contact with the plane over the Andaman Sea. At 6.30 a.m., MH370 never landed at the Beijing airport as scheduled, and at 7.24 a.m., Malaysian Airlines released a statement on Facebook confirming that MH370 was officially missing. At sunrise, China began the search effort in the South China Sea, quickly joined by Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. And this is something I'll get to a bit in the future, but a satellite in orbit over the Indian Ocean received hourly signals from flight 370 and last detected the plane at 8.19 a.m. So at 7.24 a.m., Malaysia said the plane's missing, but at 8.19 a.m. is when the plane was actually last detected flying, but they didn't know that yet. And uh, shortly around this time, worried families start to gather in the airport and reporters are packing the lobbies. The footage of this is actually really upsetting. I hate when paparazzi are just hounding grieving people like it's so upsetting and that's just all this was was just grieving families just being like carrying each other out of the room trying to figure out what's happening to their loved ones and just cameras flashing and reporters like asking them questions in one of the documentaries i watched which i will say my references in a minute but one american woman sarah bach lost her husband on the flight she said that she heard the news first on cnn it wasn't until a few hours later that the airline sent out a text message saying, quote, Malaysia Airlines deeply regrets that we have to assume beyond any reasonable doubt that flight MH370 has been lost and that none of those on board survived, end quote. They sent out a fucking text, a text, and she had already heard the news on CNN. Like, oh my gosh. Say well, what's crazy that. is like, so a lot of times they put... I mean, you know this, they'll like put a moratorium on like media contact until they're able to properly notify families. But in something like that, like, how are you supposed to keep like, that's just so the the due diligence was done so poorly. It's crazy. Yeah, no. And they, Malaysia, for several reasons, 
handled the situation very poorly at the airline did and kept a lot of information from the families and jumped the gun on a lot of things and did not have a very good reputation after this for several reasons. But yeah, I was not very impressed with how they handled it, but also like, I'm not about to fucking, I have no idea how I would handle a situation like that, but I don't think it would be through a text, you know? My very first priority would be, even before doing a press conference, would be contacting the families. Like, duh. Absolutely. Anyway, so that's kind of the end of the timeline. So let's just start talking about some of the really weird coincidences or happenings of this so at the exact moment the tracker stopped working or were turned off at 1 21 a.m the flight is in this gray area between malaysia and vietnam where neither air traffic control towers have service so he obviously whoever turned those off it was either a huge coincidence because that was only that was a very short period of time that was passing through that area so vietnam air traffic control waited for him to check in there's a grace period of about five minutes. However, it wasn't until 20 minutes later that Vietnam calls Kuala Lumpur Airport, where the plane took off from, saying, hey, we failed to make contact with these guys. What's up? And then Malaysia responded, saying <laughs> that the plane was in Cambodian airspace and even gave direct coordinates to the plane, which doesn't make any sense. Literally, someone was either super confused or just completely made it up. And they gave that information before even trying to contact the plane. And over the next few hours, they made one attempt to try to call by satellite phone, which is not enough. And they lost a bunch of precious time after the tracker stopped working by not communicating with each other. Anyway, me, an expert air traffic controller, I know exactly how this works. So... (laughs) Yeah. All right. Another two hours would pass before Kuala Lumpur sent out search and rescue, which is also way too long. Like if a plane's down, you don't wait, you know? Can I ask a stupid question? Please do. How do you do search and rescue in the sky? It's more of just let's search the seas. Because where the plane lost contact, they assume that's where it crashed. Okay, that that makes more sense. I was like, how are they like not to ask the dumb question <laughs> No, there. Here's the thing. (laughs) Here's the thing. There aren't really dumb questions in this because so many different things are professionally considered because it's such a baffling, mind blowing case. But at this point in time, all the information that they know is that the plane has disappeared where it lost contact, which is over South China Sea. They have no idea that it turned around and flew in another direction for seven more hours. Yeah, so they're assuming that it has crashed in the sea and that is like their search and rescue begins that way. Okay. Exactly. So it begins at sunrise and I'll also kind of talk about that in a second, but um, they still should have gone out after they didn't make contact after a certain amount of time. They should have been like, okay, like we got to get people out there right now. And other planes also tried to make contact with them too and couldn't. So it was like multiple attempts and nobody could do it. So, however, after launching the search and rescue mission a week later the military said the plane showed up on their military radar which and they use a different kind of radar than the air traffic control radar had the military come forward sooner they wouldn't have wasted literally an entire week searching in the south china sea and even more troubling the plane flew directly over butterworth air force base in malaysia and this is a big deal a big deal for a couple reasons one the base is used by forces in malaysia australia new zealand Britain and Singapore like it's a really big base 
And remember, all tracking devices were off, so this plane was literally a UFO on their radar. There was nothing on their radar that said that, hey, this is a Boeing 777. This, like, it literally could have been another, like, country's jet. It could have been an alien. Like, they didn't know. And they, this should have caused the Air Force to send planes up after it to identify it and guide it to land. But that didn't happen, which is a complete breach in protocol. And they, they really messed up. And the military said that because they weren't at war with anyone at the time, they feel like they didn't really need to act and they weren't, like, you know, worried about it. That is insane. You want to know what's even worse? No. Want to know? Oh, yeah. I'm going to yes. tell you. Because they had been warned. Like, they, like, the military had literally been warned that there was an unmarked commercial airplane in the area that they needed to look out for. And nobody did anything. And in one of the documentaries I watched, the guy, I can't remember his exact title. I wish I wrote it down. But he was, like, the head of the military and was he was so defensive. And he was such a dick about it. And he was so just like, no, everything's fine. We were fine. Like, do what do you want us to do? Like, blow it out of the sky. That's what the Americans would have done, huh? Huh? What is that what you wanted us to do? And he and I was, we were just like, no, we, what if you just sent up a plane to see what it was and maybe follow it? Like, maybe that's what you should have done. But I'm in shock right now. <laughs> I know. All right. Well, clearly every party involved made a series of poor decisions that led to this plane disappearing. Had they had better communication with each other and had the military done what they were supposed to, this might not have happened. But of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. It's a lot easier to look back and be like, they should have done this. But at the end of the day, I have no idea what it's like to work in air traffic control or be in the military or the Air Force. But still, multiple experts have stated that this was a breach of protocol on so many different levels. Also, the way the plane was flying shows an intentional cause for miscommunication. Sorry, as it continued on its erratic flight path, it flew between air traffic control radars from other countries. So had it shown up on their radar, each country would have assumed that their neighbor was in communication with it and not bothered to check in. So clearly a very knowledgeable person was at the controls who like who knew where these radars were and the best places to fly to kind of fly between them. Other nations and military were asked if the plane had been seen by their satellites, but they were reluctant to share any information. Um, so like, they don't want to reveal how much they know about the happenings of other countries or how advanced their technology actually is. Like, They don't want to incriminate themselves. So basically, they didn't want to say, like, hey, what's up? Russia here. Yeah, we saw your plane on our like, top secret nuclear spy satellite that shoots lasers and can see through walls. And it's also piloted by like dinosaurs mixed with like the DNA of Vladimir Putin. Um, and we made it illegally in our labs. And fuck you, we're Russia. What's up? Fuck your plane, too. So they didn't want to say that. They didn't want to incriminate themselves. You know what I mean? Is, is that an exact quote? <laughs> Yes, yes, it is from Vladimir Putin himself, actually. So yes, please quote me on that. That's why other countries didn't want to say what they knew for fear of being found out. So, but finally, Inmarsat, a British satellite company and homie to the cause, provided data that helped predict the rest of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370's approximate flight path and proving that it was in the air a lot longer than they had actually expected. So basically what happens is their network of satellites orbit over a fixed point on Earth's surface, allowing for them to track every plane in that area. So if you kind of picture the Earth rotating and the satellite attached by a pole 
to the earth. So as it rotates, the satellite stays in the same spot over that same spot of earth. Um, that's how the satellites worked. So the satellite kind of saw the plane flying in its area and said, hey, what's up? I'm a satellite. Are you still flying in my zone of awareness? And the plane was like, yeah, what's up? I'm a plane. I'm flying over here. It's really nice. Love it. Thank you so much for checking in. And the satellites, hey, that's cool. I'm just checking every hour or so. Not trying to be needy. I'm just doing my job. And that's called a handshake signal. So every hour, the satellite would check in and be like, are you still here? And the plane would say yes until it said nothing which is around 8 19 a.m and um, that's when the last signal was received and so after this time the plane is projected to have run out of fuel and crashed so yeah the satellite pings reveal that the plane flew re- in a relatively straight line after its last turn leading britain's investigators to believe it was flown on autopilot they're also able to refine the search to an area of 2,000 kilometers or approximately 1,200 miles in the Indian Ocean west of Australia. So at this point, please look up MH370 flight path or like satellite flight path because it'll kind of show you what the satellite saw as well. A little there... fuck. Okay, yeah. So do you see? So basically after it got disappeared from military radar, they had spent time searching in the Andaman Sea forever because that's the way they thought it went down but turns out it took a hard left and literally flew for several more hours into the indian ocean so but this was yeah but this was a very good indication so this it had been at this point it had been like weeks since the disappearance so they had lost precious time and precious resources searching in the wrong area all right so but now they kind of had general idea And on March 17th, a new hunt began. 42 ships and 39 aircraft from different countries searched an area spanning 90,000 square kilometers, an area nearly the size of Hungary. Satellites were also used. Um, They can detect an object the size of a football, some of these satellites. Yeah, so when debris would be spotted in the water by satellites, a ship would go out and try to find it. But by the time the ship got there, the debris would be gone because, you know, currents and whatnot. Now I'm going to talk kind of more in depth about the search effort itself. It began at sunrise, led by China. Most of the occupants were Chinese on this flight, like by way more than half, most of the occupants were Chinese. So the Chinese government really took charge in this search. Three days after the flight disappeared, China deployed 10 high-resolution satellites equipped to detect even the smallest traces of fuel and debris, which it did. However, it is impossible to know if that fuel was from Flight 370 and the debris found did not match that of the jet. So that was in the beginning. Then the area moved to the South China Sea uh, and then a week later into the Andaman Sea, um, then north of the Straits of Malacca. And then a week or so or two weeks, three weeks after that, when they finally got the satellite information and moved to the Indian Ocean and then it moved again to another area in the Indian Ocean. And... As the search areas moved and more time passed, the search became more and more urgent. Planes are equipped with something called the black box. This box records everything from the exact location and parameters of the flight to the conversations in the cockpit between pilots. For 30 days after a wreck, the black box transmits a signal allowing the wreckage to be located more easily. Unfortunately, they have still never found the black box, and that means the transmission has long since ended. So... They really had that window and it was really a race against time for the first little bit. And I know that they almost have been so discouraged after those first 30 days. 
A report in 2020 said that the international search for MH370 had cost more than 20 million U.S. dollars, covered a radius of 120,000 square meters of possible territory, but yielded not one single tangible result. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Now, with that, Jess, would you like to get into some theories? Yes, please. All right, so... For what we know so far, there's a lot of things that could have happened. And the three main theories that I found were that the most likely theories were technical problems, hijacking, and suicide. The technical problem theory, there's a few different ones that it could be. So first of all, I want to say that the Boeing 777 is one of the most high-tech and safest airplanes to ever fly, even to this day. That plane had passed its maintenance check just 12 days before it flew that flight. So the people on grounded air traffic control never received a distress signal. If the signal wasn't turned off manually, they assumed that maybe something happened immediately to the controls or to the um, electricity causing it to malfunction. So decompression is one of the first problems listed. And this is when the amount of breathable air in the cabin is reduced This could be caused by anything from a faulty door to defect in the cabin, causing all of those on board without an oxygen mask to go unconscious. If there was like a tiny leak, it could happen over, you know, a long period of time. And a lot of people might not even notice it before it's too late. I can't remember what they're called exactly, but there's another one where it's like super sudden. It's like a sudden decompression where it's more of like an explosive um, where people would have known right away. So yeah, if the flight decompressed gradually, it might have gone unnoticed, causing everyone on board to die and the plane to continue flying until it ran out of fuel. This had actually happened before in 2005 to Helios Airways Flight 522, killing all 121 people on board. This is also supported by the fact that the aircraft flew in a straight line, seemingly on autopilot. However, it does not account for the fact that before that it made multiple turns or the fact that the tracking systems had been turned off. So decompression is for the most part likely unrolled or at least decompression that killed or affected the pilot, right? So the next theory is fire. Maybe a fire in the electronics bay, which is beneath the pilot caused the instruments to malfunction, crippling communication. Could also be why they never sent out the distress signal, like I said. A large, you're going to hate this, a large quantity of lithium batteries were reported to have been on board in the cargo hold. In total, there were over 2.8 tons of electronic cargo aboard. If put in the front of the cargo bay, it would share the wall with the electronics bay beneath the pilot. So then I kind of started looking to battery explosions because why not? And um, it is super sudden and violent. And it's just like an enormous fireball that immediately lights and bursts into flames and the fumes are very toxic and had those fumes gotten into the air conditioning vents it could have and probably would have poisoned everybody on board causing them to go unconscious so in the last 20 years Jess I know you have flight anxiety so I meant to apologize at the beginning of this um So sorry about that. But in the last 20 years, there have been more than 120 incidents involving lithium batteries on planes. Flight UPS-6, it was a cargo plane, crash landed in the Dubai desert after the pilot signaled a fire started by lithium batteries on board. The fire was so catastrophic, the plane crashed. Both pilots 
who were the only ones on board, died. The fire hypothesis Great. would be supportive. Great, love that. <laughs> I know, super nice, right? The, how's your flight anxiety right now? How are you feeling? I just finished my drink, so good. Yeah, really I, well. I, you really threw that back. I'm proud of you. So <laughs> you're gonna want to get more by the end of this. Trust me. The, the fire hypothesis would be supported by the fact that they climbed to a high altitude, remember 45,000 feet, which is like insanely high. This technique had actually been used in the past to put out fires by depriving them of oxygen. Um, the fire theory is also supported by three witnesses on the ground. An oil rig worker in South China Sea claimed to have seen a plane burst into flames mid-flight that night. The second is two fishermen who claimed to see a ball of fire crash into the sea. The third is from Catherine T, who was sailing from India to Thailand with her husband. She also claimed to see a burning plane. However, however concerning as these claims might be, they don't actually match up with MH370's flight path. So either they didn't see what they thought they did, they're making it up, or there are like four other planes that burned and crashed that night that we just don't know about <laughs> but they yeah so those those uh witnesses are were pretty much dismissed because it didn't match up with the flight path that they had on record um and why do we fly like I, not to not to harp back to my flight anxiety here but like why do i pay as much money as I do to get on mm. a plane and like I know the statistics okay mm-hmm. driving in a car way more dangerous sure all right fireballs caused by batteries mm-hmm. if it makes you feel better um <laughs> that uh no plane has ever made it more than 30 minutes with a serious fire on board so the fire hypothesis has actually mostly been denied because after the initial turn at 1.30 a.m., the plane kept flying for another seven hours. So it was very much likely probably not a fire, but being in a fire has always been one of my biggest fears. And the only thing that I can think of worse than maybe a house fire is a plane fire (laughs) when you're like 35,000 feet in the air and the plane catches fire. Like, what do you do? Where do you go? What's going on? Come on. My hope is that I just pass out and die. Oh, absolutely. I hope, yeah, I would just want to simply pass away. I would just like, Jesus, take, take me now, take me now. Even if it's to hell, I don't care. I just like, don't want to be here right now. It completely get it. It's, it feels real bad. So that's why the fire hypothesis has kind of been denied. Um, Because here's the thing. When they turned around, it did look like they actually turned to make an emergency landing at an airport. But because again, there was no distress signal. And because again, they kept flying and kept making more turns. They're thinking that that initial turn might not have actually been for an emergency. So what about hijacking? What's up 9-11? Basically, they were like, sorry, that was very tasteful. Um, so they, people were like, was flight 370 an attempt to recreate 9-11? There were several cities and air force bases along its flight path that could have been targets for an attack. And to support this theory, um, two Iranian men boarded the flight with stolen passports and false identities. However, they were heavily investigated and not believed to be terrorists and were discovered to be refugees fleeing their country for a better life. Also aboard were 20 employees from Freescale, which specializes in electronic weaponry and stealth technology. So, I mean, I don't really know any more than that, but I mean, could they have been a terrorist target? 
you never know. And it should be noted that also entering the cockpit forcefully is extremely difficult. The doors are fortified under heavy surveillance. Like the pilots can literally see who's in front of the door at all times and a key code is required to enter. However, sometimes pilots will allow passengers to enter the cockpit if they ask. Co-pilot Farik Hamid had allowed two young female passengers to enter the cockpit just a few months prior, of which there are actually pictures of them all posing together. So it's not unheard of for pilots to allow people into the cockpit. I would say today it probably is. Like I literally can't even fathom asking because I feel like that's probably the stupidest question. Like absolutely not. Of course you can't go in the cockpit. Like sit the fuck down. Oh my God. Okay. Really? Yeah. I, my grandpa's a flight attendant for two different flight companies. And I seem to recall one of the first times that I flew, we flew standby with his tickets So they knew that we were flying as like a family standby and I was really scared because I was four and the flight attendants let me go and see the cockpit because they had given us first class seats. Mm -hmm. So I was right. We were right up front mom, write in and tell us if I'm telling the story wrong, but I seem to recall being given the wings that I have from a pilot in a cockpit. This could be a, this could be a made up memory, but we're going to go with it. Because this seems, as I'm like thinking about this, this seems very real. Oh, that's actually so cool. Because I've, I've heard that they give out wings to kids. And I think that's yes. the cutest thing. And But that was also before this happened. So I'm not sure if, because this happened again, this happened in 2014. Like literally we were juniors in high school. This was so yes. recent. My experience was, was recent. also pre 9 11. Because I yes, was four. So. Exactly. So we all know that uh, flight policies have been heavily improved since then and I'm, I'm sure they would still allow people in the cockpit if they like really knew the pilot but I bet it's heavily discouraged for anybody else but hey I mean I should ask I've had luck with that in the past I once got to just because honestly if you just ask a lot of times really great things can happen for you like I once got to um honk a horn for a ferry in Boston just because I asked and he was like yeah (laughs) and he let me and then also a train conductor gave me his hat I didn't ask for it but I just said he had a nice hat and then it was also in Boston then he just like gave me his hat and I've never worn it obviously but I still have kept it because I'm sentimental and I actually don't want to get rid of it um so anyway now I have this train conductors anyway so it's just one of those things where you never know unless you ask so maybe next time I fly I'll ask All right, so the hijacking theory is uh, kind of denied uh, in part due to the fact that the attacks were never actually claimed by a terrorist group, and usually terrorist groups are really quick, sorry, really quick to claim attacks like that, like with 9/11 or other attacks. So they don't think it was, uh, they don't think it was actually terrorism, and so that leads us to the last big theory, which is suicide. And I personally think that this is the most likely theory. And this has actually happened before. It happened with an airline in Mozambique where a pilot took an entire plane down and killed everybody else on board. And again, while the pilots were entering the airport that morning, surveillance video shows that they looked very calm and like, you know, not stressed out in any way. However, this is where things get really juicy. 
Captain Sahari was rumored to be having marital problems and could have actually been having an affair, though his family really denies these rumors. Um, it is speculated that Sahari's mistress broke off their affair a few hours before the flight. Apparently, Zahari received a call from an unmarked phone with an unidentified woman on the other line just before takeoff. And there's proof of this, but they don't know what was exchanged in the phone call. And they, I still think to this day, they don't know who the woman is or where the call was from. Yeah, if I was that woman, I'd be keeping my mouth tight shut. Uh-huh. Yeah, girl. Like- Although, I did just look at the pictures. I know you said that it's really unfortunate to look at, but I did look at the pictures of the families. And I actually, on second, on second thought, I think that I'd have a really hard time keeping my mouth shut. Like from like a self-preservation part. Yeah. But like seeing Mm -hmm. these people and them wanting answers, like, like thing is, she's not going to get arrested for being a mistress for helping a husband cheat. Cause that's not illegal. It's definitely looked down upon, but it's not illegal. She's not financially responsible for his actions. No. And she wasn't like, Hey, let's dive bomb a plane let's do it you know she she wasn't necessarily on the other end telling him to do that she can't be held responsible but I can still see why she'd be freaked out because people are looking for someone to blame and they if this were to be a true theory they would obviously blame her because that's the closest thing they have but um yeah I mean it was also speculated that his wife left him just a few days prior uh, to this event but that was also denied by his brother-in-law um, so you know it's hard to say all right so remember how I mentioned earlier that he was really heavily involved in politics the night before the disappearance Captain Sahari's close friend and I also read somewhere that he was like a distant relative so I'm not sure which one it is but this guy Anwar Ibrahim leader of the opposition party in Malaysia was arrested and sent to prison so this could have possibly been a motive to bring down the plane, but with so many innocent people on board and also like, why wouldn't he have made a statement about it before he did it? You know what I mean? And remember how we had a flight simulator? Uh, many people argued that he used this to plan out his strategy for this disappearance. One investigator claims he had actually mapped out a route to the Indian Ocean on the simulator. But again, his brother-in-law said that the machine had been broken for over a year. So we're not actually sure if that's true or not. And they have so heavily and closely guarded the records for this case it's so hard to know what actually happened because Malaysia Airlines just like won't talk about it anymore his daughter Captain Sahari's daughter allegedly said that her father seemed distant and lost in the months leading up to the incident but later denied those comments and said that they were made up by British tabloids so it's so much of he said she said there's no way of really knowing and uh, it's so hard to tell Many people think that Captain Sahari locked his co-pilot out of the cockpit, put on his oxygen mask, and disabled the oxygen masks in the cabin, and manually depressurized the plane, killing everyone else on board. This also may be why he flew to such a high altitude shortly after turning around, to starve the cabin of oxygen. I think that's probably the most likely theory, because as a captain, and in a couple of the do- uh, documentaries I watched, they interviewed like Boeing 777 captains. And they were like, yeah, like as a captain, you have complete control over the plane, including the oxygen masks. So like he, he in theory, he could have shut that off and he could have disabled them and made it so that he was the only one with access to a functioning oxygen mask. All right. So 
And it was also, again, clear that the captain was likely at the controls the entire time based on how he flew between air traffic control radar areas to cause confusion and how he adjusted altitude to avoid other planes, as well as how he flew on popular commercial airline routes as not to look suspicious to military radar. So it was obvious that, like, while the flight path trajectory looked kind of random, it was very meticulously thought out. It wasn't just like flown in random directions, even though it seems that way. There are a couple other theories that are so fun that I just wanted to mention them. Um, One suggests that the plane was shot down by the U.S. government. Another said that maybe the plane was kidnapped by Russia. Maybe it was blown up by a Chinese submarine or perhaps abducted by aliens. Um, One CNN anchor, Don Lemon, said that it could have been sucked into a black hole. (laughs) You know how black holes work? sure don lemon does (laughs) (laughs) oh my god my boy um i just love that it was a cnn anchor too it wasn't even fox news you know all right so this is my personal favorite theory i thought this one was so funny and absurd um but i also kind of liked it It seemed very james bondy to me uh so some people apparently think that Sahari jumped from the airplane with a parachute right before it crashed into the ocean and landed in a boat piloted by his mistress waiting for him so they could run away together into the sunset. Yeah. It seems a little extreme to me to kill over 230 people just so you can run away with your mistress, but hey, like, you know, to each their own. So you never know. You never know. All right. Divorce seems cheaper. Yes. Yes. Yes, it does. Also a lot less illegal by like... 100%. (laughs) So, all right. So what now? What's happening now? Um, Over the last few years, several pieces of debris confirmed to be from the aircraft washed ashore in the Western Indian Ocean during 2015 and 2016. I think the most significant is a flap from the wing used during landing. It appears to have been damaged in a way that shows that the pilot had flaps out on impact as if in an attempt to do a water landing. But again, if he was actually trying to kill everyone on board, why wouldn't he try to land? Why wouldn't he just like yeet the plane into the ocean? You know what I mean? It's 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 so weird. But after the flop was found, Malaysia Airlines emailed the families with a statement that read, quote, Malaysia Airlines would like to sincerely convey our deepest sorrow that the object recovered off the coast of Reunion Island on the 29th of July was indeed from flight MH370. We appreciate that this must be an extremely difficult and distressing time for you, and we assure you that Malaysia Airlines is here to help and provide you with more updates in due time, end quote. (laughs) Jess, as a communications major, how would you have maybe written that differently? Well, I think the the thing that they don't have in this is they're hiding behind the tech, what, what would be considered a tech wall. So they're emailing and they're texting instead of doing verbal conversations like i mean i don't want to give the u.s military anything but like when a service member dies two members of the armed forces that that person is serving with go to your loved one's house inform you in person they are trained within a certain amount certain bounds to provide careful and we one hopes compassionate conversation with the victim's family sure and obviously you know it sounds like there there's it's hard to go into a place and say we don't know what happened but it's also ridiculously hard to lose a loved one and it's i think that that any modicum of compassion and in-person 
conversation would have been so much better for these families. Like you already have no control over what's happening. You already like have, have very little information. There's this, like, I'm sure this glimmer of hope that maybe something will come out and your loved one will be alive on some Island somewhere. But like this airline company literally was like, we don't want to deal with it. Here's an email. And I think, yeah, that's just so. And you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right with that's exactly how the families felt too. Because I mean, due to the airline's history of being kind of shady and keeping information away from the public, most families refused to believe that debris was real. Um, The husband of one passenger said, quote, I was left somewhat confused and frankly, a little angry and dismayed, end quote. Grace Nathan's mother was a passenger on the flight and she said, I might have thought that if they had found a piece of the plane, it would be enough, but it wasn't. I want to know not just where the plane is, but how it got there, what happened, end quote. So a lot of people are not happy with this finding, and many actually are suspicious that due to the lack of marine life found on the debris, like barnacles and stuff, that even though they had obviously spent a lot of time in the ocean, they think that the debris was actually planted by the government. It also be said that debris from the plane in its interior, which washed up on the west coast of the Indian Ocean, suggested significant energy of, on impact. So that kind of goes against the theory that he might have tried to do a water landing, but also like if you're still doing a water landing, that's still going to be pretty intense amount of impact. And you can hear that from like Captain Soli landing in the Hudson. It's the same thing. Like apparently the, the amount of hit, the force it hit was insane. So it's hard to say. Doctor, forgive me for this. Oh my God. Um, Dr. Shalk uh, Lukoff disagrees, saying that all marine life evidence was washed away by the sand, shore, and waves, and the pieces sat in the sun before they were found, causing the barnacles and stuff to, like, um, melt away or whatever. But still, the thing that troubles me the most is not much debris has actually been found for a plane that size and with that many occupants. It is very unusual that at least a floating seat cushion has never been recovered. This could maybe be explained if the plane flew into the water almost completely vertically. It might not have torn it up as much, but they still said that the flaps showed evidence of an attempted water landing. I don't know. Just nobody knows. And there's so many different he said, she said things. But I kind of want to end this and talk about the families a little bit more. Hundreds of families still remain heartbroken and lost to this day. They have no idea of the fate of their loved ones. I read one article that was written about seven years ago that just broke my heart. And I think it really well depicts the impact of the crash had on people. Um, It's so easy to get caught up in the conspiracy theories and forget the reality of the devastating incident. And so while this information may no longer be relevant, I still wanted to share it. So when the flight vanished from radar on the 8th of March, 2014, it was carrying three members of Yao Ying's family, her daughter, her son-in-law, and her three-year-old granddaughter, Zhao Yingzin. Two months after the disappearance, when the families were forced to leave the hotels, Gao and her husband, Zhang, went to Beijing's eastern suburbs, where they rented a two-bedroom flat. They have lived there ever since. Quote, I feel that by living here, we are closer to them. End quote. The softly spoken 62-year-old says that she remains convinced her family will one day return. While clutching a damp tissue and fighting to contain her emotions, Gao said, my daughter is still alive. The MH370 passengers are still alive. I'm just waiting for my children to come home. I know. I know. It's so sad. Because it's the not, it's the not knowing. It's the hardest part. And I think anybody who's ever been in limbo 
obviously I'm probably not to this extent, but even just if your cat ran away and you don't know if it died, you know, it's just, it's just the not knowing that kills you. Cause either way, if you know, they're alive, great. We can move on from that. If they, you know, that they died. Okay. At least we know. And there are ways that we can mourn and we can try to heal from that pain. But when you don't know, and there's still hope that maybe they are still out there, you know, on an island drinking out of coconuts and on a barbecue, just saying, Hey, like what take you, like what took you guys so long? You know what I mean? Like that's what they're hoping for, but there's still until bodies are found until the black boxes are found. There's really no way of knowing. And I know, I wonder if any more of the records covered in their most in the more recent years have brought her any sense of closure in this, but it's hard to say. However, one last thing, we might soon get answers in 2021. Revolutionary Aviation Tracking Technologies by Richard Godfrey pinpoints the plane landing in the Indian Ocean and falling to a depth of 4,000 meters to the ocean floor. Yeah, in like the super, uh, what's the word for just super complicated or hard terrain to get to? There's like fucking volcanoes and underwater mountains and shit in that area. Um, He also predicted that the flight would be found in the second half of 2022 if a meticulous search of a 40 nautical mile zone is actually carried out. And in in addition to that, there is talk of another search being planned for 2023 or 2024. But unfortunately, while there are many plausible theories and explanations as to why Malaysia flight 370 disappeared, we will never truly know what happened that day until we find the wreckage in the black box with the cockpit recordings. The only people that know what happened are the pilots themselves. And that is the disappearance of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. That is insane. I like knew some, of, like I knew a little bit about it, but I had no idea kind of like the intensity of it. I, on the vein of conspiracy theory, I feel like as you were talking, the only thing I could keep thinking about is there has to be some sort of like military cover up. Yeah, I I agree. Like Like if they were like shot down or something. Yeah, or like they know, but to admit they know would admit like what data they have on other countries, kind of like what you were saying, Mm -hmm. things like that. And it's just like, interesting. Well, I'll be curious to hear in the coming months and years what this new technology is able to find. And um, I hope that whatever they do end up finding brings peace to the families that lost yeah. their loved ones to whatever ended up happening yeah I agree so it's it's sad it's hard and I think you're right like it's either military cover-up um and they like planted the evidence or there's definitely a cover-up on some level because the fact that so many people had this was 2014 all everybody on that flight had a smartphone or a laptop Or like there were, there was like sufficient tracking technology, not only on that plane, but on every person on that plane, somebody somewhere knows something. It's just incriminating evidence against them. So they're not saying shit. So one thing, one of the things that I think is probably the most likely to happen that happened is it was the captain and it was a suicide mission. And I'm guessing, you know, after because like so many things systematically happened, shut off communication, and the plane was flown in such a way that it had to be flown expertly by somebody who had 
flown those planes for decades and which he had and I'm guessing that he probably locked his co-pilot out um turned around put on an oxygen mask flew up to a really high altitude knocked everybody else out and then kept flying and maybe he was planning on bombing a city or bombing a airport but he might have just like had second thoughts and then you know kind of kept taking turns trying to figure out what to do and then eventually just kept flying and flying and flying and flying until the plane ran out maybe he took his own life and the plane just flew on autopilot till it ran out of fuel but I think it I think it's likely that he did have a plan but then I don't want to say chickened out because he's not a chicken for not like committing an act of terrorism and mm. crashing the plane into somewhere else. But like, I, I think that he might have had second thoughts on his initial plan to make a point. And at this point was like, well, I can't just land here because then they'll I'll be found out and they'll arrest me. But I also don't want to kill these people. So maybe if I just let the plane run out of fuel, but I'm also dead at the time, it won't be as bad. So like, I, I'm thinking that that might have been what he did. Yeah, think about it from like that kind of perspective. But there's again, there's no way of knowing. No, it's all theoretical. But I do want to say real fast that the sources I had, um, the Enigma Flight MH370 documentary, uh, the documentary Lost MH370, What Went Wrong, Countdown to Catastrophe, season one, episode six. But also don't watch it because there are a couple um, stories on there that I want to discuss in later episodes. Anyway, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 Disappearance article by Eric Gregson. A conspiracy theory article on Wired by Jordan Golson and, of course, our girl Wikipedia. And also an article by um, Nine News as well. So I'm excited to hear what yours is. Can I go pee first? So I will preface this by saying mine is a lot shorter than yours. <laughs> um, Sorry no it's okay there's just like less information on mine because mine is government related so I also wanted to start this off with talking about one conspiracy theory that I wanted to do but um it's a conspiracy theory of one aka me (laughs) uh so I'm gonna talk about that for just 30 seconds and then I'll do my real one is that okay Allison please do I wish you okay I don't believe that North Dakota is real. And here's why. Have you ever met anyone from North Dakota? South Dakota, yes. North Dakota, no. Exactly. Everyone knows somebody from South Dakota. Nobody knows anybody from North Dakota. Okay. Also, I've never seen a North Dakota coin. I think that North Dakota is made up by South Dakota to get more (laughs) government money. Interesting. Interesting choice. I I like it. It's a cover-up for white supremacists. Because did you know that a large population... Okay, on Real Talk, I know that North Dakota is probably real. But, like, I also... Have you ever met anybody from North Dakota? No. However, I did watch a documentary once talking about white supremacy and how the Dakotas have a lot of white supremacists in it. And also, North Dakota's primary language is German, not English. Fun fact. For real? I didn't know that. Again, further proving why I don't think it's real. I feel the same way about Delaware, if that makes you feel better. I've been to Delaware. I don't believe you. Okay, great. Well, I'm just going to gaslight you into thinking that you never went. I saw a Delaware license plate once and I like vividly remember where I was and what I was like listening to. And I was like, it was such a big moment for me. 
like I literally like slammed on my brakes to slow down and make sure that it was like the right license plate and it was blue it was an RV very exciting anyway um please tell me what else I'm very excited to hear so that is my that's my 30 second rant on why I think North Dakota is real sorry if you're from North Dakota but also sorry not sorry okay so I will say that I didn't intend to cheat on our theme with this. However, the more I read into it, the more proof for this being real came to light. And I discovered that it is not just a conspiracy theory. It's real. So, Allison, have you ever heard of the government Cold War project, Project Sunshine? Oh, it sounds familiar, but I do not know what you're talking about. Okay. I'm so excited. So Project Sunshine was commissioned in 1953 by the United States Atomic Energy Commission and the USAF Project RAND and conducted in partnership with the UK Atomic Energy Authority. Project Sunshine was set in motion to examine the long-term effects of nuclear radiation on the biosphere due to repeated nuclear detonations at the time. Their primary source of study information came from bone tissue. So Wait, like human bone tissue? Yes, human bone tissue. So here's a a really quick biology lesson for you that kind of gives you an idea of like why in the 50s this group of scientists was like, we got to study bones. So nuclear exposure is devastating to the human body, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Nuclear radiation, not good. Okay, so following the drop of the atomic bomb, they were like, okay, we've done this. We've seen these devastating effects in Hiroshima. Um, We knew that it probably wouldn't be great, but now we're really worried about the environment. So part of this was how much radiation that went into the general environment or the biosphere, how much is it going to affect everybody around the world now that we've done this? And also if we were to do it again, what would happen, right? So Part of the reason that nuclear or excuse me, nuclear radiation is so harmful to your body is because when humans are exposed to radiation from a nuclear bomb, for example, the cells of the body process radioactive isotopes like they do calcium. So immediately your cells think that this isotope is like a similar nutrient to calcium from the way I understand. Yeah, basically. And they absorb it into your bones thinking that it's like calcium. It's like However, nuclear cows, kind of. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. However, it's not calcium, which is why one of the first things that starts to experience symptoms when you've been exposed to radioactivity are your bones will break or your teeth will fall out or things like that. So like, that's kind of where that breakdown begins and like, why it causes all these weird cancers, things like that. Your body literally absorbs it so well. It's kind of crazy. So bones are the first thing and they're like the easiest thing to study when you're studying nuclear radiation and kind of long-term effects. So I'm not going to pretend to fully understand how radioactive isotopes work. I have a degree in English, but Project Sunshine was looking at a specific type of radiation called strotonium-90, Because of the way the body processes what became known as SR90, developing bones are more susceptible to radiation damage. So when the government went to study these effects, they needed bone tissue of 
children, specifically developing children, to properly understand what SR90 and nuclear fallout does long-term to the body. However, <laughs> how do they get bone tissue? Exactly. So um, how were they able to do these studies has kind of been like the he said, she said of like, how do we know this if the study had to be done on children? So there's a lot of ethical or I should say lack of ethical there's a lot of issues in this research as through kind of the 1940s to the 1970s as the Cold War kind of hits into full swing and there's all these whispers about what countries are doing, but the U.S. is trying to hide things from Russia, Russia is trying to hide things from the U.S., but everybody's like, did we fuck the whole world by dropping an atomic bomb, right? So here's kind of like to, to lay the groundwork of where these scientists are coming from no one fully understands the ramifications of what a nuclear fallout means but these scientists are kind of shitting their pants over what will happen if everyone were to enter a full-blown nuclear war with russia so they're like trying to decide like how do we prepare just in case something goes seems awkwardly relevant today a little bit a little bit so naturally scientists begin kind of researching what would happen in the worst case scenario so that's kind of where these research studies start coming in However, there's like all these issues with this testing, obviously, because like, how are you going to test what happens to the body with any type, like, even if it wasn't this SR90, there's different types of radiation. They're like, how do we test this? Right. So there's all these, there's all these examples of unethical studies that came out during the time. So for example, in Chicago, there was a group of scientists that would take stillborn babies from hospitals without informing the mother and subject these bodies to it's not funny i'm so sorry i i know it's very upsetting that's why i just scoffed is what like so they would take these they would take um like i said they would take stillborn babies from this hospital they have reports of at least 41 oh, stillborn? but stillborn stillborn oh i thought so you said like, newborn i was like oh my no how would the moms not notice her yes Got so it. stillborn babies the mothers never get these babies, like never get to bury these babies. They're taken. And, you know, I'm not entirely sure what like common practice was, if, but like these mothers were not told what happened to their children, even though like they had been born dead. Like it's still, the sure. mother had no informed consent over what was happening to her child. Um, so this was, this was called the Chicago baby Pro- project. They estimate at least 41 cases of this, but they'd basically subject these newborn stillborn bodies to radiation and just would say like, okay, let's see what happens under these different circumstances. And they also in, in even worse, they would subject, um, minority and disadvantaged groups as well for these they do like live testing which is just awful because again they take the most vulnerable of society and we don't know the full extent because it's never been released like live babies no like like adult humans oh shit i found this on a conspiracy theory subreddit and then as i got digging into it there's like substantial proof that this happened like it's not a question of if it's a question of to what extent at this point so um we know i mean it's at this point it's pretty widely known that the 20th century or especially the early 20th century subjected 
a lot of minority and disadvantaged groups to testing across all types of things, but and, and nuclear testing was not an exception to this. Um, so basically families of these people and stillborn babies were rarely notified nor compensated for the traumatic losses and damages. However, because that kind of came out that this was going on, scientists exhausted these avenues and they came under fire for using these groups for their scientific studies and kind of had this issue where they were desperate for subject, what they referred to as specimens to study the fact that they're calling it specimens. And it's so like, it's such a weird, because you know, in their heads, they're justifying it as like, there is this insane nuclear fallout that could happen. We need to know what's going to happen if we do it. Like if it does happen, but also like at what cost, like it's very dehumanizing. Exactly. And like, there's no, several of the articles that I read like referenced informed consent and like people, people do medical studies on cadavers all the time. You can donate your body to science. It's a very normal practice, but because they needed they specifically wanted children to study because developing bones absorb more calcium for this specific type of radiation. They wanted children and that's harder to come by in a cadaver lab. So at one point uh, in the 90s, an investigation is launched into kind of like what was going on in this time. There was all, like I said, this, this started as kind of a, a conspiracy theory of like, we think the government and we'll get into this in a minute. We think the government is doing this kind of shady thing, or we think that they were doing the shady thing in the in the past. We don't know. We don't have any proof, but like, this is what people are saying. So in a transcript that came out during this investigation in the 90s, a Dr. Willie Willard Libby, who was heading up the Project Sunshine study, is quoted in a meeting transcript we were fortunate, as you know, to obtain a large number of stillborns as material. The supply, however, has now been cut off also and shows no signs, I think, of being rejuvenated. He later in that same meeting went on to say, I don't know how to get them, but I do say that it is a matter of prime importance to get them, and particularly in the young age group. So human samples are often of prime importance. And if anybody knows how to do a good job of body snatching, they will really be serving their country. I'm sorry, was this written by Cartman from South Park? Because apparently. Uh oh my, oh my God. Yes. So the whole the whole thing that leads <laughs> to this is so fucked up. I wish that I had the original Reddit post that I said on this, but the whole conspiracy theory is through the 40, the 40s through the like kind of 50s and 60s, there was this prevalent thing happening where people were basically losing bodies in hospitals. So like if you had a stillborn at a hospital, you would be given your child back, but in a closed casket. So you couldn't see them or you were just never given a body back at all and never given a reason why, or, you know, kind of things like that. Or like there would be damage to the body and you wouldn't have any idea. Like it would be missing a limb those types of things. So there was this kind of weird thing that like people are stealing parts of bodies in hospitals, like hospital, like it was like a a whole thing. So you're like, where are these bodies going? Turns out following this meeting from this transcript that I was referencing, it is estimated that that between several European countries, Australia and the United States, 
the scientists working on the study obtained approximately 1,500 cadavers, many of them babies. Of these collected cadavers, only about 500 were analyzed, and in most cases, the families were never informed that their loved one was having parts of them removed before burials or cremations. So in a lot of these cases, they weren't. And then this is the kicker. They were shipping these body parts. So like they wouldn't typically take the full body. They would take parts of the body, particularly the legs, because it was the most bones that they could study. But um, they would ship them to the United States. So like the operation here is insane. And this is why, again, government conspiracy theories are just kind of crazy because they have the resources to do them. And like, this is one of those ones that like in a document release in the nineties year, decades after this kind of finished up, they proved that these, these kind of hysterical mothers were right. That like the hospital really was doing these crazy things. Limbs were being taken from children who had passed. Like that's not very humorous. Exactly. Thank you Get so it. much for that. <laughs> but um, Thank yes. You. Thank you. Um, so, and it was like a multi-country effort. When I was reading, there were investigation, formal investigations that were launched in Australia, the United States, in Canada, and in the UK. And that's just like from what I was reading. It didn't name all of the European countries, but um, those are the ones with formal investigations trying to figure out like what families because then this is the other thing these families have no way of proving if their stillborn child was like included in this so you have no sure. like because who's going to believe it's 1950 who's going to believe this hysterical woman who's lost their child that like the government is stealing her dead baby <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, no, yeah that sounds absurd but yes just absurd enough that it's probably true exactly exactly um here's another kicker Dr. Libby, who was heading the study, later won a Nobel Prize in 1960 for his work in chemistry studies. Baby Stiller, Nobel Prize winner. Love it. God, Ben have it so easy. I know, right? So in the 90s, an investigation that came out of the UK launched following an Observer article reported that British scientists had obtained children's bodies from various hospitals and shipped their body parts to the United States. In one of the documentaries about this, a British mother named Jean Pritchard reported that her stillborn baby's legs were removed by British doctors, and to prevent her from finding out what had happened, she was not allowed to dress her own baby for their, her funeral. Oh my god. Yeah. That's so, so And then again, like, what is this woman supposed to do? go to the government and say, or like go to law enforcement and say, I think the doctor is stealing my baby's limbs. What recourse do you have in this? So then here's kind of what's crazy. People knew that this was this and kind of the other um, radio, like crazy radiation testing practices were happening. Like as soon as the, the first reports of this happened in like 1955, 1956, and the study started in 1953. So like three years after this started, people were like, hey, we think this weird thing's happening. But because there were no documentation, like public documentations of this going on or proof was like, there was no published proof. They had, again, like they had no recourse. So this was just kind of like this, this um, theory that people had 
on how they were obtaining these studies and these information because they were publishing their findings, but they were like not saying how they got the subjects to do these studies on. So no, no proof of this was published until the 1990s when these countries launched their separate investigations. So like Bill Clinton, when he wasn't assaulting his intern, launched an investigation <laughs> following the British journalist releasing their find- findings and subsequently the UK did the same. They've since, the governments have both since released hundreds of documents surrounding these controversial studies, but no names were ever recorded of the babies or their families. Um, nor were any of the names of the grown adult people used for these experiences or experiments. So they were all given numbers and that's it. There's no record of where these came from. So you have no, no one has any idea like if their family members were for sure a part of these studies. I mean, that's why they did it. You know, they did it with numbers. So there's no record. Exactly. That's so sketchy. Um, And additionally, they've only released really the bare minimum of these documents. So you can only imagine like what things they're not releasing mm-hmm. and they can, they can sit here and probably mentally justify like, well, these people were already dead. So like, at least we weren't doing it on live people. We were doing it on like what they're considering human specimens, but like the families and the loved ones had no informed consent on like these procedures happening and like, didn't get a say in what like was happening to their loved one at any point nor were they given like the option to ask like nothing like that it was just like oh this seems like a vulnerable family sure we can take this one sure all in the name of patriotism america yes neil diamond just swells in the background i that is so upsetting yes Um, the only tiny bright spot, and I hate to even call it a bright spot because it's really not, um, they did get a lot of effective research out of it (laughs) as much as it sucks to say they proved that radiation from a bios from the biosphere of this like specific SR 90 isotope causes minimal damage to the body, um, which is a like small comfort in a nuclear fallout situation, but if we're in a full nuclear fallout, I don't know if I really care that the radiation in the sky isn't going to affect me as much as the radiation on the ground or whatever it is. Or just um, like, let's talk about the explosion in and of itself. Like, I'm dying either way. No, it's like, we're absolutely fucked. It, yeah. It's, it's I'm glad that little isotope is not going to come for us. But what about the other 8,000 things that are going to kill exactly. us in the event that happens? Well, and here's what's crazy. So like, they used to do nuclear testing in Utah, Arizona, right? So my grandparents who grew up in Southern Utah in a little town called Milford were downwind from an, from a nuclear testing site. So they are on a registry when they turned, I think it was like 60, like retirement age, like somewhere in like 60, 62, they've been like on a list their whole lives. They had to go to the doctor and like be put in a research group basically of like, okay, you've been exposed to this your whole life. Like you're more likely to have cancer at your old age. And they're like basically on a watch list. And like, yes, because, and again, they did all this testing, never informed anybody. Like there was no, until like after the fact it was like, Hey, by the way, when you were a child, you were like 
downwind from a nuclear test site. Here's hoping you don't get cancer. Good luck. Wow. Yeah. I can't, you actually know people, you know, people who that's, that's insane. That is insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Um, and like, of course they had no, they had no clue. And then they also don't know like the genetic ramifications of that. Like just is what it is. Dude, yeah, what so it is. that explains your third eye. Holy shit. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Oh my God. Insane. And that weird finger you have out like in your back, like, oh my God. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Thank you. You're so welcome. So I know that this is not like, there's, there's not as many crazy like spinoff conspiracies with this. And, um, as I was researching it, it's like very clear that this did happen, but the thing that kind of is conspiracy ish about it too, is that like for several decades, people were just like, yeah, this is happening, but we have no proof. Mm-hmm. And like, also we have no idea. Like this is just the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg when it comes to nuclear testing and nuclear research on like the effects on the human body. God only knows what else was done for the sake of ye old cold war. Sure. But- do, do you, do you know the story of the radium girls? Yes. Mm-hmm. It, like that's what I kept thinking of how they were literally like look in the mirror and their teeth would be glowing yeah because basically for those of you that don't know very quick the radium girls they basically I think I think they worked with um radium in watches yeah and it, it got into their skin they breathed it in and basically their skeletons their bones started glowing and they mm-hmm. all eventually died like really horrible painful deaths it's maybe we'll cover it one of these days but it's it's a really crazy story and it first time I heard it it really stuck with me because the effects of radiation are so horrific yeah it's it's crazy like there is a there's a a really pretty decent dramatization of the radium girls I think on Hulu with our our favorite actress from kissing booth one two and three on Netflix (laughs) Joey King Dude, I hate that that's what she's associated. She's such a good actress. She's so good in, oh, God damn it. What's the one where she's Gypsy Rose? Oh, yeah. Um, She's so good. The act, I think. The act. Oh, my God. She's so good in that. She's she's a a wonderful actress. I'm really sad that people associate her with that movie. This is so terrible. But, like, she got her Netflix bag. So did so so did the guy that plays the weird boyfriend in that show. He he used that and slingshotted himself over to Euphoria. Oh, 100%. It, it, you know, it, it, it worked. It worked. But, oh, man. She's definitely anyway. had better acting roles, for sure. Yes. That first, that first kissing booth, it is, it is an experience. I don't think I ever got to watch the other ones. It's not worth I, it to me. I think I made it 15 minutes into the second one. It's very, very yes. not good. No, it's not. But uh, to make a short story short, that was Project Sunshine, wow. a government body snatching game played by scientists who valued their research more than the respect and sanctity of human life in some cases. The name sounds a lot happier than what actually happened. Here's what I think is weird is like, a, why would they call it sunshine? Could not find a definitive answer on that, by the way. I tried. Oh, um, could it be because of the atmosphere? I, it, I was going to say, I think it's like biosphere or something to do with that. 
most of their other ones, like from the same group were named after people, like their other big one that when they study, there's like a different type of radiation they studied called project Gabriel. That's the one that they use live people on my sources were good old Wikipedia an article from ABC news by Leela Jaquinto Reddit. I'm not ashamed. Uh, mysteriousuniverse.org an article written by nick redfern seems totally real a new york times article but from 1995 a washington post article from 1994 called by gary lee and a journal article titled project sunshine and the slippery slope the ethics of tissue sampling for shetonium 90 by sue rabbit roth and then finally, an article from The Guardian that does not have a byline titled Britain Snatches Babies' Bodies for Nuclear Labs. That's very straightforward. They weren't, they weren't messing around. Jess, holy shit. That is, that is insane. Wow, that's so fucked up and I completely believe it. And you said the fact that it was a conspiracy theory, but it's actually fucking true. Yeah. No, did you ever come across any statements from the families affected? Well, so that's the hard thing. You don't know that you're a victim. Right, you said that. So they can't prove who was. So the only one that they that I saw as I was reading through these um, was the woman, Jean Pritchard. And again, she doesn't have proof that that's what happened to her baby. She just, because of like the circumstances around it that's that's uh that's what she's got um i'm looking at this this guardian Wait, article so because really the no i remember you saying that so like because the families they would get something back like they would get a a body or a bag yeah. of ashes they'd literally just take pieces of the body and then like be <laughs> oh. weird about like what how much contact they could have and i assume I don't have any reports like proving this, but I assume that it would be kind of like a, we don't think it's good for your grief. Like we'll take care of it. Like they do kind of some sort of weird gaslighting technique, but yeah. So they describe it in this article from the guardian. They say the human guinea pigs and the guinea pigs is in quotations are not named, but assigned code names as part of tight security surrounding the experiments. Baby B1102, for example, is listed as a boy who died at age eight months. Baby B595 was a girl who was 13 months old when she died. There's no record of like necessarily like where they got them. They have oh they God. have like rough ideas based off of transports or like where they were shipped from. They know that a lot of them were from like that came from the UK were from the Cambridge area and like a hospital there. But again, they don't have a ton of like records of who these people were or who these children belong to more importantly. Okay. If anybody has top level clearance to this information, you are obligated on your deathbed to tell all of us live on our podcast, what, you know, because I'm so mad that we don't know more about this. And that's the thing mm-hmm. is somebody like somebody somewhere knows something and also like to be the person in the FBI or the CIA or fucking Oval Office or whoever that has top clearance to information like this, they have access to files. Oh, yeah. That in 
oh my god like the shit that they must know but I'm sure that like if they said anything their families would be it's just yeah the the stuff that I know is just going on behind yeah we just have no control we have no control we have no idea and yeah oh my god and I'm looking at this article from the Guardian right and they say that at least 6,000 bodies were taken like over the course from 1955 to 1970 in Britain alone they collected 6,000 bodies for this purpose or they utilized 6,000 bodies for this purpose no that's not solely stillborn but like that's like including like in general everybody oh my god babies that died in hospitals things like that that is so devastating. Yeah. I wonder just what the process was of the baby dying and getting sent to the morgue that they would be transferred to the arms of like some like skeevy yeah. CIA guy with a mustache and a bowler hat as he like tiptoed to his like fucking black car. I don't know. Like, I just it's like you can't trust hospitals. Like, you know, the most sacred thing to a parent is their child's life. Yeah. And to not be able to confidently know that you put your child to rest after losing like I've I've I know a few people who've lost babies whether to miscarriage or just in early stages of that infant's life and the devastation you know even after years that they still feel and mm-hmm. it it's so heartbreaking that these mothers and fathers and families had to even wrestle with the notion that they might not have buried the body of their child or the entire mm-hmm. body of their child or yeah. that their child's body was what's the word like defiled yes and again like without informed consent because plenty of people donate their bodies or to science or mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. when they lose a child at a young age they um do you know organ transplants those types of things like there's plenty of stories like that but with informed consent, like informed you consent. know that your child will be helping another child by giving up their organs or will be helping science by giving like you providing science with their body, that kind of thing. And plenty of people, it's part of their grieving process to like know that their child's body is helping another. Mm-hmm. But in this case, like there's no... There was no, there was no option at any point given because they had way less. I don't even want to say they had way less regulations. For all we know, they could still be doing something like this. Yeah, it's true. Um, we don't know. But wow, good one, crazy. good story. Thank you. That was I've never heard that before, and I I actually kind of like the twist that it was a conspiracy theory turned real. Yes. Well, it was crazy because as I was like reading the thread, I like clicked on it because I was like the government has been snatching bodies. Interesting. And as I was like reading through it, there was all these people like talking about it. And like, I know so-and-so that thinks that this happened to her kid, like blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then somebody was like, wait, you guys, this is real. And then linked a bunch of these news articles and like all these government papers and things like that. I, I, but like body snatching has been practiced for centuries as a way for scientists to better understand human anatomy and improve medicine Mm -hmm. and while I it does it has like served a purpose it's always been in really fucked up ways and you know there's stories of I can't remember 
the names, but it, it's a Scottish, I think it's a Scottish story of two guys who literally would get paid to bring bodies to this doctor. And then they ended up just because they're getting paid so well, they would just start murdering people to bring in bodies. And it's a, it's an insane story. It's so interesting. It's so good. Again, maybe that's something we'll cover one day, but I yeah. wish I could remember their names, but it it's been happening for for centuries. Mm-hmm. And I would be, like you said, I'd be shocked if it wasn't still happening today, yeah. but just on a more discreet level. Yeah. So, so crazy. So yeah, that is the Project Sunshine story, 1950s to the 1970s. Wow. Thank you, Jess. That was really awesome. horrifying. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Thank you for yet another thing to add to my plain anxiety list with your light story. Yeah, you guys, I meant to mention this. Um, Jess has really bad flight anxiety. And one of my favorite things on the planet are plane crash stories. I don't know why. I think it's because they scare me so much. But I love to I love to learn about them. I love to learn about the mechanics of planes. And last time Jess got on a plane, all she could think about were stories that I told her about planes crashing in the exact circumstance that she was in at that moment <laughs> like uh, like it was snowing and I feel so bad um I'm very sorry that you are forced to listen to me say these things but I love you and I appreciate you and now we have a podcast so we can say that it's for something right yes exactly well and here's the thing while I was on said scary flight I did have a comforting thought of Allison's told me that turbulence very, 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 very rarely, if ever, brings pl- planes down. So even it though doesn't. the turbulence was the worst I've ever, it was the worst flight I've ever been on turbulence wise. And I hated every minute of it. I did know I'm not going to die over the Nevada desert tonight. I like how I was metaphorically whispering in your ear the whole time because had I been next to you I would have been literally whispering in your ear the whole time either adding to your anxiety or maybe easing it a tiny bit but I probably still shouldn't have said anything but here's the thing you're correct that and I think I texted you this afterwards that it almost no amount of turbulence can bring a plane down as the other circumstances that would and there was literally one time like uh, a plane took off from somewhere in Texas and the turbulence was so bad it literally broke a passenger's neck and injured multiple people on the flight and they were still able to turn around and make a safe landing. Like the plane was chilling. Everybody else on board was wrecked. Like somebody literally broke their neck. Like the people on board would die of the turbulence before the plane came down. And knowing that makes me feel more confident on a plane in a weird way. And I think that's why I like researching plane crashes. I'm so much. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I hate it's... it so much. <laughs> so I'm like smart. thinking about the fact that I'm getting on a plane again in June and I'm like, well, you I'm... are, where are you going? We're going to go to Las Vegas. No, get we're, out of there. We're not worth it. Flying one way and then driving home the other way. And like, I know, I know the statistics. I know that driving in a car is like way more likely to kill you, but. But cars don't fly 35,000 feet in the air. So yes exactly Again, and I'm also control of the car yes yes you do in theory and the thing is is that I'm the type of person I have actually gone skydiving I have jumped out of a plane Jess you would not catch her anywhere alive more than like probably willingly 20 feet off the ground I thought ever. about the concept of skydiving the other day because I was watching skydiving videos on TikTok and I was like why 
why do people pay to do this? And like, I know, I know that it is a thrilling, exciting adventure for y'all, but it is like everything that I hate in, on the planet combined into <laughs> one activity, Planes. scary rickety planes, <laughs> planes in general, lack of control, free fall, jerky motions, <laughs> air sickness. Did I mention lack of control? <laughs> Likelihood of dying. Fear <laughs> of heights. Zero. Fear of oh my heights. God. Yeah. Okay. You know, but you're right though. The thing is like, I loved my first experience skydiving. It was so fun. Cause I went with our friend, Johnny, who we've talked about before. Johnny is actually afraid of heights. Genuinely, legitimately. And I don't know how I managed to get him on this plane, but we went together and he was really anxious the whole time. And he started asking you know the pilots we did this in Nephi Utah I think and he started asking the pilots uh, or just the people that owned the place he was like so has anybody ever <laughs> died <laughs> here and you know they started saying actually no not anytime recently but statistically we are overdue for an accident and then we jumped everything was fine but not two weeks later a woman and her instructor died at that exact same place because their parachute didn't open two weeks later at the exact same place we were at. And the thing is, though, is that our original jump date had been pushed two weeks because of wind. And so had it been pushed again, like, you know, it, it's just that was too close for comfort for me. And so I don't know if I want to go skydiving again, because that really scared the shit out of me because the guy literally called it. And honestly, it's his fault for not knocking on wood. But, and I remember our Johnny, I jumped out with the plane first and then probably about however long later, Johnny jumped out with his instructor and I, he was on the ground about five minutes before I was because he was responseless (laughs) and the instructor was like, are you okay? And Johnny just like, didn't say anything. And there's Roger, the instructor's like, you good? And okay, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take us down then. So I just remember seeing them just in their parachute, just <laughs> flying towards the ground, just straight line. Whereas like my instructor was like, here, pull on this. We're going to do big loop-de-loop circles. And I was like having the best time ever. And I just remember watching Johnny land and being like, oh, that's crazy. He's down there so fast. And when I got down there, so Johnny's Hispanic. He was whiter than me when I landed on the ground. His skin was as pale as a sheet and I could not have been more hyped up poor guy I came up I think I like slapped him on the shoulder I was like oh my god that was so much fun oh my fucking god I had a great he was just like "Uh, uh, uh." and then on the drive back I was like it was everything I could do not to drive like 200 miles an hour because I was so hyped up on adrenaline and Johnny was just like I'm just gonna lay down for a minute and like put the seat down and literally just laid with his arms over his eyes for like the rest of the two-hour drive home poor guy good times man but yeah no after that I I don't think I want to go again just because it was too close for comfort yeah. and also did I t- I told you this briefly I can't remember if I mentioned this on the podcast but the best people to just shoot your shit with are flight attendants yeah because they know some shit and one of them was telling me about how she got in a crash landing with Leonardo DiCaprio mm-hmm. and how the engine blew out and all that and <laughs> And then she was like, yeah, he actually mentioned me on an interview in Ellen, but he gave me a Southern accent, which doesn't make sense because I'm not Southern and she wasn't. 
And in the interview, he also described how um, he's had a few near-death experiences, and one of them was his parish didn't open and he was skydiving. And he thought he was going to die, and then they finally got the backup chute to open, but it was, like, too late. And so the instructor was like, just so you know, we're probably going to break our legs when we land. They managed to land just fine, and they, you know, they didn't actually break anything, but that was just, that was literally Leonardo DiCaprio told that story. Like, skydiving doesn't give a fuck who you are. Okay, so it's just at this point, I'm just like, I, I think it's the age. I'm 25. I just don't have as big of an interest as in doing life risking things anymore. I just like, I'm so down. I'm so down to do anything and everything. I love it. But, you know, I did it once. I don't know if I need to do it again, unless it's like about Hawaii or something. The fact that like we're so good of friends is so funny <laughs> to me. I know. Here's the thing though, and I will say this for myself. I am willing to say yes, but I have very specific boundaries and a plane and a parachute are boundaries that I will not cross. (laughs) And that is so fair. You guys went and did that parachute or that skydiving thing for Johnny's birthday and I did not go. I had so much emotional FOMO of not doing that with you guys, but I was like, I cannot force my body onto that. There is no amount of self-talk that will get me to get on a plane and like and jump out of it and you know what that is a limitation I'm okay acknowledging and however that's fair you want to pee in some bushes on the capitol lawn Mm. that may or may not you know be in Salt Lake City Utah sure I'll do that that was your idea exactly that's a great story have we told that story yet maybe in passing Maybe in passing, but I think it's about time we mention it. Whether we cut this out or not, or tell on a different tale. One time, Jesse and I got both like wasted drunk, and Johnny doesn't drink, so he's always been our DD in moments like this. And this was a couple years ago, and I remember being like, "Okay, like we got to pull over. I really got to pee." And Jess was like, "I gotta throw up." And so Johnny pulled over somewhere. Do you remember this? You were throwing up. I was peeing. You you don't remember grabbed a pen oh out of my center console to pull trig literally to gag yourself so you'd vomit anyway oh so yeah I we did. make Used johnny pull over we t- we made johnny pull over i grab a pen for jess out of my center console that was probably in my server apron and she gagged herself throwing up in a bush i was like next to her literally we were on the steep hill and i was trying not to fall down the steep hill because i was like had my pants around my ankles trying to pee I look to my left, Jess is vomiting, and I look over my shoulder, and just looming behind us is the Utah Capitol building. Johnny had pulled over on the grounds of the state of Utah Capitol building, and we were peeing on the property and vomiting on the property of the Capitol building. It was... Allegedly, we did this. (laughs) allegedly yes for For legal purposes this is a joke for legal reasons that was completely made up Um, but it's also for legal reasons maybe one of my favorite memories of us together okay and I will say I think technically we were on the capitol grounds I think we were on park grounds for the park that's next to the capitol so a little less so there's like the road surround like the block surrounding the capitol building we were on the other side of that road yes and there's on the hill sloping downwards so i guess maybe we're in the park but we were literally right across the street from the capitol building it was a grand time i have a friend who lost their virginity also in that same parking slot area 
I mean, it's a good area. Great views. <laughs> so a lot of memories being made. Some people virginity, others of us using it's a pen that we don't know where that's been to ensure we don't have a hangover in the morning. This is not a practice I recommend. But drink responsibly, please. Yes. Anyway, well, conspiracy <clears throat> theories, Allison. Any final thoughts? Any last conspiracy theories that you think anybody needs to look up? Have you heard, I almost did this, but then obviously plane crashes have my heart. So have you heard of the Simpsons predicting the future? Oh yeah, that's such a great one. Isn't it insane? How down to like photographs it has predicted literally Donald Trump getting elected, riding up an escalator like in the in the episode in like the fucking like 1997 or whatever mm-hmm. and then 20 years later Donald Trump actually does get elected and almost identically to the people standing in the background to the glass windows in the background mm-hmm. there it is an identical photo of him actually riding up the elevator waving and if you look up like Simpsons prediction Trump election like I think that'll that's one of the first images that'll come up but there's that there's um lisa as kamala harris and like the exact same outfit mm-hmm. on the exact same podium like, it is insane and they have had multiple predictions of the future and i really love that one but i had no time to talk about anything other than the one that i was going into yeah i almost did one there there is a conspiracy theory that the whole concept of the medieval times mm-hmm. and like the many many steps backwards in technology between the roman empire and like the medieval times and then the renaissance is fake Hmm. and it was like there is like two or three hundred years of time that is faked to legitimize a pope's ascension to popedom I believe it, dude. People it was a pretty, crazy. I started to do that one. And then I was like, this one's actually pretty boring when you get into the nitty gritty of it, even though it's kind of interesting that like people would fake time. Um, but it's like from the 11th, like, like 900 or 700 AD to like 1100 AD is like fake. Like all of the history we know from that is like faked by the Pope. <laughs> I mean, who can say it isn't, you know? So technically we're like in 17 something or other right now we're not in the 2000s yet which leads into the y2k conspiracy theory of like why computers didn't flip out love to see it love to hear it it all goes back to catholicism every single fucking time it's always you jesus you're always the culprit anyway all right well jess i will see you next week for another episode of three two one shots then after that, we are doing natural disasters, uh, of which I have had a story decided for quite some time. It's going to be so fun. so fun. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Have a lovely rest of your day wherever you are, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.